Hey guys, we're back with another episode. We today we have another interview <coughs> with Matthew Castaneda of Young Americans for Liberty. So I'm gonna let him introduce himself. Go ahead. Yep. Um, thank you for having me, Tori. Um, yeah, like he said, my name is uh, Matthew Castaneda. I'm the New Jersey State Chair for Young Americans for Liberty. Um, you know, I just got back from a, from a latest national convention or otherwise known as Yalcons in uh, Memphis. You know, so of course, uh, for the organization, I'm in charge of uh, Yal's whole uh, operations within uh, New Jersey and even some parts of New York. You know, so um, what I do is I'm, I try to mobilize and to recruit student and adult activists in the area. Um, of course, I'm also responsible, primarily responsible for setting up chapters. I'm looking to set up uh, activism events and to really make an influence in the local area, such as, um, you know, looking for candidates to support and endorse for our operation with the door, um, also to uh, initiate ballot initiatives, you know, on issues such as uh, legalizing marijuana or um, opposing new taxes, like the governor, like the current governor is always trying to pro propose, and uh, other ways to essentially advocate for uh, for freedom and to scale back a uh, scale back the scope of government power. All right. That sounds good. I mean, I'm always, you know, looking for, I guess, new ways of getting the message out there. Yep. And, uh, you know, I've, I don't know too much about uh, Young Americans for Liberty. But I've, from what I've gathered, you guys are, you know, doing the things that are necessary to, you know, get the message out there and try and convert people. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, th I feel that the most important way of doing that, at least from my end, is to basically promote the ideas of liberty and limited government through a nonpartisan lens. Like, of course, while uh, Young Americans for Liberty does have our preferred um, political figures, such as uh, Senator Rand Paul, former Congressman Ron Paul, um, Thomas Massey, Justin Amash, um, Virginia Delegate Nick Freitas, and many other um, legislators that would be considered conservative or uh, libertarian leaning, um, we're officially a nonpartisan organization, and we're, we're, we prioritize principle above anything else. Um, we always ensure that whatever candidate or political figure that we endorse and support um, are grounded in principle that they, don't, they, they do not have a record of um, succumbing to the establishment or to or they are not willing to waver on their principles, regardless regardless if it goes against the rest of their fellow people in, the in their respective political party or not. Um, for example, you know, not to go too deep into it, um, one of the legislators that we've uh, endorsed in recent times, uh, Matt Gertler down in Georgia, 
even though Georgia is a heavy red state, um, obviously, like in many cases, a lot of the uh, Republicans don't practice what they preach. Although, as for Matt Gertler, who is, uh, you know, whose main political idol was Ron Paul, he was the only Republican in the state legislature to um, vote against the Republican proposed budget for the, for the next fiscal year for the state of Georgia. And obviously, the Republican establishment, including the uh, speaker in particular, um, weren't fans of that. And uh, they actually actively campaigned against him on behalf of his primary opponent. But um, because Matt was very principled and very popular with his constituents, especially mainly down to the fact that he kept his prom he kept his campaign promises and again never wavered on his principles. He still won with at least sixty percent of the vote in the primary for re-election, and of course he easily won re-election in the general. So um, these are the kind of people that um, we try to get elected and to keep in the state legislature. Um, and this is something that we've only been doing for a little over a year now, and we've already gotten thirty-eight. Um, legislative victories in states across the country, especially in a Georgia, like said, Georgia, New Hampshire, um, Texas, um, also uh, Mississippi, Virginia, um, North Dakota, but we're also looking at a bunch of different other states. Um, New Jersey as well, even though for kind of obvious reasons, we're having a bit of a more uh, difficult time uh, finding a true principled uh, conservative or libertarian candidate in the state. You know, but overall, it's been uh, so far a very exciting and uh, successful uh, campaign for us. Yeah, I mean, it sounds, like I said before, it sounds like you guys are headed in the right direction. And I like, you know, like one of the trouble so I have like uh, picking a candidate to vote for, especially on you know below uh, the um, presidential level, is that it's hard to know what these guys really stand for. Yeah. Is it? that they're just saying things or do they actually believe them? Well, I mean, unfortunately in most cases, especially now that we live in a world where partisan hackery is at like its all time highest and I'd say it's all time um, strongest degree, you know, so regardless of how crummy your voting record is, it is to your actual rhetoric or campaign promises as long as you run as you know with the r next to your name with a d next to your name you're going to get reelected every time and unfortunately especially these days um overall over the past couple elections the vast majority of people in congress in fact over 90 percent of incumbents get reelected every time so we it's just the problem is now is that a lot of people just focus on party lines rather than actually looking at principles that the candidates are supposed to go by or say that they go by, how strictly they stick to the campaign promises, and um, in essence, of course, to see how principled or conservative that they actually are. And um, I see, but the bright side of all this is that I see this as a great opportunity for organizations like Young Americans for Liberty and other organizations that prioritize principle 
to take advantage of the partisan hackery and the increasing unpopularity of the two parties. And at least in, in my personal case, as a, you know, as a libertarian on principle, um, even though I'm a Republican myself, I see this as a great opportunity for um, people my generation to when, you know, when they take up the mantle of the Republican Party in place of the, uh, the older generation, such as the boomers, um, we, especially, you know, since us Generation Zers and some later millennials are a lot more socially libertarian and, you know, on principle. So like, you know, more in favor of gay marriage. Um, we're not as uh, supportive of going into endless wars in the Middle East. Um, we, a lot of us tend tend to acknowledge that the war on drugs doesn't work and that a lot of the propaganda that was taught to us about marijuana being a gateway drug is pure BS. Um, like even among, even among students and younger people still consider themselves conservative. A lot of them still, you know, even a lot of them have those kind of views, in, you know, socially speaking. Of course, economically speaking, I, it's safe to say the vast majority of us are principal conservatives bar those who support Trump's tariffs, I suppose. But by and large, um, the, the next and up and coming Republican activists not only just in New Jersey or in other states, but in the country as a whole, I see is moving towards a more libertarian direction. And I want, I really see this as a great opportunity for people like myself and Young Americans for Liberty to take advantage of the, uh, of the coming trends and to really make us the, uh, the focal points of the movements and to really make inroads and to try to make, to really make an impact in the country. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's uh, even some of the young people who are uh, Democrat-leaning, but they don't necessarily buy in with the full-on socialism ploy. I think they are other people who could be targeted as people who would be receptive to the libertarian principles. Right. And the main thing I see, especially um, along with my fellow activists in the state, is that it's not even that they're that supportive of socialism. A lot of them feel that they are because of all the sound bites and talking points that they hear in the mainstream media and candidates such as Bernie Sanders. A lot of it in the end is down to lack of information. I'm not saying that Everyone who is informed has to be libertarian by nature, although I could definitely make a case for that. Um, a lot of them don't really understand the true depth, or they, or nor do they really understand what the actual ramifications are when it comes to a lot of the things that they support, whether it's free college or universal health care, or um, you know trying to cancel student loan debt, um, reparations for um, people of color, um, a lot of, like, the problem with the movement, you know, especially for those that believe in a, a lot of left-wing ideas, is that they're so focused on the intentions. They're so focused on um, getting that rush of dopamine feeling that, oh, if I utilize the government this way, then I'm doing something right. But what they fundamentally misunderstand is that in almost regardless of what you do, regardless of what you have the government do it is inherently inefficient 
especially compared to when private organizations or individuals handle the issues themselves, whether you're talking about healthcare, whether you're talking about, um, you know, providing jobs for people, and even a lot of cases when it comes to um, trying to handle a lot of the uh, social issues that we have right now, such as the opioid crisis, especially in New Jersey, um, you know, of course, uh, the adopt, how expensive adoption is, um, a lot of those issues. Um, so a lot of us don't, because the problem is, is the mentality that a lot of us people, a lot of us people have in this country, both left and right. Like, even though in a lot of cases, it depends on the particular issue, but by and large, I feel that too many of us, or a lot of us have uh, too strong of a habit to, towards relying on the government to solve all our problems when something goes wrong, you know, so I mean, the only way, at least at this point for me, that the government should get involved is to protect your rights. You know, whether your right to self-defense, your right to free speech, and the like. But besides that, I don't think the government should be looking to do anything else. And um, I think that is a very important thing for um, a lot of people my generation to learn and understand. Otherwise, they're just going to live out their lives unhappy, acting entitled you know, or always relying on the government to solve all their problems rather than trying to fix the problems themselves. Right. Well, that that's just the thing. I think that it's people, you know, especially younger people and older people too, I think they just sort of depending where they grow up, they develop these ideas and these ideas often get regurgitated to them and then they're in a vacuum where they only hear those ideas and they don't really ask the questions of, well, how would this work? They just sort of expect it to work. Yeah, exactly. Um, the one thing that I, at least I noticed through my experiences and a lot of other people's experiences that, um, you know, through the public school education that we get, a lot of them really teach us a bunch of things about presence and uh, aspects of uh, U.S. history in such a way where like, oh, it's definitive fact. Of course, a lot of the stuff they talk about is fact, but they teach it in a way where it doesn't it doesn't like teach the students to learn to question or shows them how to question. And I think that was what was the very most important thing or most important traits that I have that allowed me to open myself up to the ideas of libertarianism and liberty, because whether it was, um, you know, annoying my parents or when it came to um, questioning what my teachers would always uh, tell us or whatever talking points they used, in class, I was always a person that liked to question. You know, my particular case, um, I was raised with uh, immigrant parents. My parents initially came here from Colombia. Um, especially growing up, they were very strict. And um, I just had this, and I grew up with this tendency as a result to question a lot of things. And um, what made me uncomfortable doing that was the fact that whenever I questioned something, out of, out of genuine curiosity, um, my parents or whoever was in charge of me um, didn't even bother to actually explain things to me and instead 
um, would just say just because I said so, or you shouldn't be questioning me. Why do you have such an attitude? And obviously like that didn't deter me from, you know, you know, asking more questions. It, it made me want to ask more questions like, okay, so why, like, if you want me to do this or if you want me to believe that, why? Like I was always interested in why and um, including in uh, a lot of teachers and college professors, especially a lot of people don't, don't like to be questioned or a lot of them feel intellectually threatened or contested. If someone asks them to be more elaborate, they just tend to assume that people will just take their word for it. And that's another thing that I think is very dangerous to our society today, especially in college, because a lot of these students are hearing a bunch of far left-wing talking points um, parroted out by the professors, and a lot of them don't even bother to even question it. A lot of them just are intellectually lazy and just take their word for it, and they become liberal or more left-wing as a result. But at least based on my personal experiences, you know, including myself, those who tend to question a lot of those views or at least ask the professors or other people to go more in depth about why they are have the talking points that they have, um, a lot of them tend to go more conservative or libertarian leaning. So I think if we can teach a lot of students and the people in the young generation in this country to question um, the institution's talking points, you know, whether it's in academia or in the mainstream media, if we just get them to ask those institutions to elaborate rather than just expect us to take their word for it i think the intellectually speaking the left wing would be in a lot of trouble because from what again from what i've seen they're not as well articulate and they just rely on people to just they just hope that people don't question what they think and you know in order to keep their credibility yeah i think it's just that you know, I think a lot of kids, I know I did, and, you know, you just hate school and you sort of zone out and you just wanted to, you know, you just want to get it over with and you sort of don't want to ask questions even though you may have questions and even though you're not really listening intently, stuff gets, you know, sort of, you know, your, your brain absorbs some of the stuff they're saying. So then by the time you get out of college, you know, you're inundated with that. And if you don't have instincts to question things and seek out answers, you know, you'll be stuck in that rut until, uh, you know, something clicks. Right. Yeah, exactly. And um, another, another important aspect that I think that we need to change is the idea, and this is even, uh, this is even an issue among families that are more conservative or right-leaning, is that especially over the past few years, we've ingrained this idea into students that they have to go to college in order to be successful. And full disclosure, I'm a college student myself still. I go to Rutgers, Newark. I'm a finance major. I'm about to start my senior year. 
while, um, you know, even in cases like finance or especially uh, engineering majors, doctors, um, or other uh, very complicated majors or areas where you need, you actually need college in order to become successful in the field, by and large, especially when it comes to liberal arts or even political science to, to a degree, um, you don't really need that education. You don't really need to get yourself into tens of thousands of dollars in debt and spend four years of your life in such an institution, you know, in areas where you could learn potentially a lot more in a shorter time frame on your own terms. And um, even with even with a lot of the majors we have in college, um, what I've noticed is that for the first two years, you don't really learn anything pertaining to your major. A lot of it's just uh, core classes. A lot of it's just stuff that you're taking that are prerequisites in order to actually be eligible to take classes that are actually relevant to what you actually want to learn. And um, there's a lot of aspects in different industries, especially, you know, in business or in um, entrepreneurship, you know, there's a lot of things that you need to learn or need to know or tra certain traits that you need to have in order to be successful in those fields that you would never learn in the classroom. Like even in uh, primary school or leading up to uh, high school, a lot of them don't teach you very important aspects. Like sure, you'll learn about Odysseus in English or you'll learn about all these things that you're not sure, like that you always ask yourself, okay, when am I ever going to use this in life? In a lot of cases, at least so far for me, I haven't used a lot of the stuff that I learned in high school or even in college. A lot of the important stuff that I actually do need to know are not being taught to me in the classroom. Like I had to learn on my own, whether it's to file tax returns, whether it's to like, you know, iron my clothes, do laundry, or, um, you know, skills such as like cooking even. A lot of that stuff you don't learn on your, like in school, unless you really go out of your way to try to learn that. But obviously with a lot of us uh, people these days, you know, a lot of us just tend to go the status quo just to get things over with. A lot of us overlook, you know, a lot, of it, a lot of us overlook the fact that we should start thinking, okay, what am I going to get out of these classes? What am I going to get out of the education that I'm getting and how much it'll help me throughout life? You know, don't get me wrong. A lot of the stuff that we learn, especially in primary school, all the fundamentals are important. But with that being said, there is still a lot of uh, holes to fill in the education system, especially after uh, Common Core was attempted and it's been a large failure. Um, uh, education as a whole, especially in recent times, has failed to really try to teach us or best prepare us how to succeed in life or even a lot of cases be properly prepared for college, you know, because we all have this mentality. We all have this, um, a lot of us don't even bother to really change the status quo and to really try to help give ourselves a more effective and better education. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, college, uh, education, I just think the whole system's sort of broken and, uh, I mean, you look, there are schools where in high school, you know, like the last year or two, your junior and senior year, or just your senior year, 
probably depends on the school, but instead of where you take like half a day of classes and then the other half you're doing like an apprenticeship. And to me, that just makes all the sense in the world. Right, absolutely. Um, another thing I would say is that I think we need to better promote you know, other alternatives, especially since, you know, we're obviously, you know, we're the total student loan debt in this country is over a trillion dollars. A lot of kids are going into massive debt just to get the degree that they want. And in a lot of cases, and I've talked to many fellow college students about this, a lot of us feel that we're not really getting an education. A lot of us feel that we're not really paying all this money in tuition just to, have, to actually learn something. It seems like all, it seems like, um, at this point, we are paying all this money just to get the piece of paper that is the, that is the degree. I know it sounds simplistic, but it's really just to make sure that we can get that certification and to fulfill the requirements needed to get that certification in order to get into the field that we want. But there's a lot of opportunities out there, especially when it comes to apprenticeships or um, you know more uh, hands-on opportunities such as like you know plumbing or even truck driving, or a lot of um, areas that pay well, but don't really require a college degree and require a lot less time, you know, in education or in classes. Um, I feel a lot of those jobs are wrongly stereotyped. A lot of them are, a lot of them have like this odd stigma that it's like, you know, oh, if you do those jobs or if you do, or if you learn those skills in trade, you're not going to be perceived as successful as people that would go to college, become doctors or engineers or even business majors. Um, a lot of those, a lot of those classes, a lot of those um, trades are not being uh, promoted enough in society. We ingrain this mentality among so many people, you know, that, Oh, you have to go to college to become successful. Even though there's a plethora of examples where, a lot of people become overwhelmingly successful, you know, billionaires included, prominent billionaires that we all know, a lot of them are college dropouts or never even really bothered to attend college or take college seriously. Everything that they built up success, you know, to, that contributed to, to their success was all self-made. And um, I don't, that's, and that's been the same case for a lot of immigrants, for a lot of people that come into this country or for those who just know how to work hard and to become successful and to utilize every opportunity that they get that is not, that is abnormal or different from what you'd get going to college in order to become successful. So I think another important thing we have to do is to promote more different, different avenues or different alternatives towards uh, becoming successful and uh, being able to stick with a career. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, like you were saying before about, you know, you really only need to a college degree to, if you want to become a doctor or a lawyer. I mean, I, I think that's right on the, you know, that's, I mean, that's pretty much my view. And I think, you know, we have to, 
get people thinking that way now. I don't think it's, um, I think it's sort of a cultural stigma, especially in this area. I know, I don't know anyone who didn't go to college. And I think that's one of the dangers of, you know, what uh, everyone who's pushing for uh, free college tuition is missing. They're missing the point that if you just send everyone to college, a college degree is going to mean even less than it does now. Right. And it already doesn't mean that much. Right, exactly. Um, and I suggest, and I point a lot of the blame on this to the Department of Education, especially when the government tried to invest a ton of more money into promoting higher education, which obviously for, you know, tried to incentivize or impose mentality in the country overall that, Again, you have to go to college in order to become successful. You got to get the degree in order to get the job you want. And obviously, um, as we see in, in every statistical measure, that education hasn't improved, even though we spend tons and tons of more money every year into education as a whole, and especially when the government spends more and more money into education as well in both public and in uh, college. But what I find fundamentally um, immoral about, you know, a lot of these uh, presidential candidates that want to cancel everyone's student loan debt is um, the fact that a lot, all of us taxpayers, a lot of us taxpayers never went to college. And um, when you go to college or when you decide to pay for college or take the loan, you're making an investment. You're taking a risk. And um, when you take a risk, oftentimes, like in stocks, when you make, when you invest in something, you, you know, when you take that risk, you know, you know, you're going to gain money or if you're going to lose money, like you're going to win or lose something, that's part of a risk. And um, basically when you're asking people to help cancel everyone's student loan debt, you're basically tell, you're basically coercing people who often refuse to incur the risk to subsidize or to cover for people who decided on their own to take the, to take that risk. So I see it as fundamentally, again, I see it as fundamentally immoral to force people who decided not to go to college or to incur that risk to make, to try to make up for, or force them to make up for people that decided to take that risk and don't want to incur the consequences themselves. You know, I think that's a very dangerous precedent towards, um, you know, even growing the growing the scale of government even larger, which uh, always bewilders me because especially those who believe in that type of stuff, they see a lot of them openly acknowledge the um, the inefficiencies and the um, the bad things about government. But what's always ironic about them is that their solution is even more government. They notice that the college tuitions are so high or so inflated above other industries but you know they see that but a lot of them don't understand that's due it's due to the fact that the government has pumped so much money you know has um tried to invest so much money into such areas like you know in education and healthcare 
that drives the cost up. It's all about supply and demand in the end. You know, of course, in this case, the supply is money. And obviously, the more people that have supply, you know, have uh, the ability to pay for college, a lot of, so there's going to be a lot more demand. And unfortunately for colleges, especially when it comes to room space, you know, for new students to be admitted to their new class um, or to, you know, try to educate these students as a whole, the, often the, uh, the supply is the same. You know, so when there's more students going in, when there's a bigger demand and, you know, the supply is the same, colleges have to increase their tuition costs because a lot of them see, hey, a lot of these students have, these, have this money or have all these uh, entitlements or uh, grants or loans from the government. They should be, like, we should be charging more so we can take advantage of all those, um, of all that more, of all that extra money that's in, that's in education. And I do and I always argue strongly that if we abolish the Department of Education and as a whole get the government out of the business of education, like with any other as they should like as they should get out of any industry, um, college would be a lot more affordable, a lot more students who are willing to go to college would be you know, would not be in as much debt. Um, a lot of people wouldn't feel socially obligated or socially forced to attend college you know if we didn't have this mentality that everyone has to go to college in order to get a degree yeah i mean that you know the i think one the department of education was only established in like 1980 yes so everything before that was perfectly fine it's yeah you know like right before the department of education was established we were like number we were in like the top five in every category the yeah. u.s That's right. and now uh, you know we're lucky if we're in the top 20. yeah exactly so uh, and then, you know, so you look at things and you're like, well, clearly the Department of Education doesn't work. Exactly. Because all they're trying to do is regulate things. And the thing is, you know, you can't have one standard way of educating people especially in the day in the age of the internet right i mean there's so much you could learn on youtube alone where you know you're probably better off today i think you're better off being homeschooled today yeah. as long as you know there's someone uh, you know, if you're fortunate to have an adult figure who has the time to monitor it, but, you know, you could also do, like, community homeschools. Right. Where you learn based off, you know, things on the internet, articles, 
uh, YouTube videos, all kinds of things. It's much better than learning from a textbook. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's, again, that's something I think we need to promote a lot more. It's just, again, like in the end, a lot of it's just down to relying on the government to solve all our issues. A lot of people find it a lot more convenient to just send their kids to public school. You know, they find it cheaper to send their kids to public school. But um, even though in the long term, even though in the long term that maybe even having a private education or even homeschooling them would make them um, better off. Because um, even a lot of the uh, private institutions are extremely expensive. A lot of those students uh, that attend those institutions, whether they come from a rich or poor background, tend to be, uh, usually tend to be more successful than those who um, go to public school. And of course, success, whether you're successful or not, is very um, subjective. But uh, I don't think there's enough of a conversation, again, towards uh, changing the status quo when it comes to education. In fact, a lot of the uh, ideas that I've seen, especially coming from a certain political side of the aisle, is to double down or to really triple down on what we currently have now. And what's so intellectually dishonest of them is that they're treating this as like a whole new thing. Like they're treating, they're treating free college tuition or they're treating um, canceling their own student loan debt as a brand new fresh idea. When in the end, if you really look at it, it's just a major doubling down of what we have already, you know? And it, it just, it just really, again, it just really doesn't make sense to me. And I think it unfairly, um, tricks people into further believing that the government should be involved in education or that it should, you know, be able to tell you what you can or can't learn. You know, again, it's more inherently inefficient and we're missing a lot of, uh, things in public education that a lot of skills that were never taught or a lot of things that were never taught about, including what, including stuff about the political process that turns out a lot of us need in order to be effective citizens and to be successful people in this country. So. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's sort of, like, um, no, what I always use is like, it's like a pothole in the road. Yeah. You know, when you're driving on the road and you see a pothole, what do they do? They fill it up with tar. And then, uh, you know, a few months later, the pothole's back and it's bigger. Right. So, you know, whenever... Whenever the government has a problem, their answer is always, oh, let's throw money at it. And that's sort of like filling the pothole. But what they're doing is they're saying, oh, let's put a blanket over it and let's fix it. But when they're not looking at the root cause and fixing the root cause. And oftentimes the root cause was government regulations in the first place. Right. And I think there's 
a lot of, and I'm, I think there's a lot of incentive for politicians to do that because, you know, they can always just come out and say, hey, look, I support more money in education. I support investing in your children's future. Although what they're actually saying is, oh, we're looking to just band-aid the issues in education and um, we're just going to keep passing on the issue to future generations and to people that will succeed me in government. And the problem will just get worse and worse and worse. Like we're so focused on op on the optics of things and the intentions of things that a lot of us don't even bother to actually try to fix the problem at hand. Like including when it comes to national debt, a lot of uh, politicians will talk the talk and say, yeah, I'm concerned about the national debt. I want to cut spending. But when it comes time to actually do that, not only do they, you know, shy away from that they just do the mere opposite they're like oh we'll just raise the debt ceiling we'll we'll do this next year i promise we'll do this next uh legislative cycle and obviously though they usually end up never doing it you know so we just have to get out of this mentality of optics and uh what is good intentions because even as milton friedman would say like a lot of the worst policies that have been passed in history have been start have been initiated from good intentions like i don't remember the exact quote but he said something along those lines and of course the main point out of that is look we haven't again we haven't really looked down into the issue we haven't really looked into okay why do we need to put pump more and more money into the institutions every single year into government programs every single year the department of education again it's been around for almost 40 years now, but in every statistical, in every way to measure the quality of education over the years, nothing has changed other than the massive exponential increase in spending education every year, although nothing has changed. In fact, in some cases, it's even declined. Um, so what we need to do more is instead of looking at, okay, how much more money do we need to pump into this in order to get that good rush of dopamine and uh, instead actually look to figure out, okay, where's that money going? What, like what goes in, what actually goes into like, who's actually getting the money, who's actually getting the resources whenever we propose a new budget or whenever we propose a new spending increase, where is that money going? You know, like you said with the pothole thing, like, yeah, you can cover it up all you want or, or even treat it like a leak in a bottle or in a can. You can fill it up all you want with more and more water, but if it keeps leaking out of that hole, there's no point in adding more and more. Or if you keep adding more and more, it doesn't change anything unless you actually do something to cover up the hole in the bucket. And I feel that's a metaphorically speaking, that's what we need to do in a lot of these government programs is to look, is to see, hey, this is where the money's actually going. And this is why we need to keep spending more and more every year just to try to keep us, keep these programs afloat. And eventually you can only do this for so long, especially since we're over $22 trillion in debt right now. And the debt clock just gets bigger and bigger by the day. Eventually the people that we owe money to are going to knock on the door saying, Hey, when are you, when are you ever going to pay this back? Whenever you, when are you ever going to start? Whenever are you going to stop just, spending money that is not even yours when are you going to start trying to actually pay off the debt you know so 
there's a lot of things that we have to, there's a lot of issues in this country or in government, especially that stems from that issue in particular, whether you're talking about the part of education, um, defense, or in any program, there's just an absolute lack of transparency. And a lot of us don't know or don't understand what is actually happening with the extra money that the government keeps spending every year and where all our tax dollars go. A lot of us need to ask the question, instead of asking um, how much more money should we spend in, in these programs or in these areas, instead ask, where is that money going? How is it being used? Right. And I think, you know, like you said, we're over $22 trillion in debt. And, you know, the only way to get out of that debt to me is, you know, I mean, maybe by reducing it, we can hold off the inevitable. But, you know, I think to reduce it, the only way to reduce it significantly over the next 10 years would be to make hard, some hard choices and cut certain things. Yes. And I think, you know, there are, I mean, you know, I have in mind what I would cut but I think we need to figure out that, you know, most government programs don't really need to exist. Well, a lot or, of, yeah, a lot of them have even been created um, in, un in unconstitutional circumstances. So even their mere existence, um, you know, is contrary to the principles that this country was founded on. And, um, you know, and in fact, obviously, you know, as a libertarian, I suggest, I would suggest that a lot of these agencies, a lot of these institutions even be abolished or at least privatized, you know, because again, a lot of them, a lot of the ex creation or bringing into existence is, was done through unconstitutional matters, like, because especially when it comes to part of education, it, um, it went beyond the constitutional duties and responsibilities of the government to ensure the protection of citizens' rights, you know, of uh, life, liberty, property, pursuit of happiness. Um, you know, it's trying to do more than what is constitutionally required, and that's not right. That's not what the purpose of founding this country was for. And, um, Again, in a lot of it at this point, especially now, is about control. If you can control the means of, you know, everything that the people rely on, whether it comes to education or healthcare or housing, especially those three industries in particular get are the most heavily subsidized and increase the most in, uh, you know, increase the most in costs every year. It's just not a coincidence. It, like it really isn't. Like. And a lot of, there's a lot of basic charts provided by the American Enterprise Institute and a lot of uh, nonpartisan think tanks and organizations that show, hey, over the years, like it compares a lot of industries, whether, whether it's, you know, less subsidized industries like TV or technologies, where the costs, you know, gets cheaper and cheaper every year, even though the quality of products goes up. 
but then you look at housing, education, healthcare in particular, over the same time frame, the cost of spending just goes up and up exponentially. Especially since ever especially since ever since the Department of Education was created, that spending just goes up exponentially every single year, even though again, with every statistical measure that we could utilize, it's shown that nothing has improved at all. Yeah, and I mean, I think there are a lot of, in addition to the Department of Education, I think we could get rid of, I think the FDA is another example of one of those government agencies that does more harm than good. Right. And I think privatized an organization like the FDA would be a lot more beneficial. Yes, exactly. And um, I, I remember watching this very interesting uh, little video or this little lecture by uh, one of my favorite economists, uh, Milton Friedman. He talked about. Um, the difference between public and private institutions, how government is inherently inefficient fundamentally because there's no incentive to be more, more efficient. Like when it comes to private businesses, you have to rely on profits. You have to rely on, you know, out, you know, out earning, like, you know, you have to earn enough revenue to be, to match your expenses or to go above it. Otherwise your business is going to go under and you know you're going to be out of business so of course the incentive is we have to make enough of a profit in order to stay in business right and whenever the business um fails obviously you know in a lot of cases because oh the business could have done this they should have invested more in that you know they have to better hold themselves accountable but when it comes to any public institution or any government program or agency whenever they fail to achieve their goals or fulfill what they're supposed to do, a lot of them can just conveniently say, oh, we just didn't get enough funding. We just didn't get enough resources from the government. So what happens? They get more and more money every year, and it's just the same cycle over and over again. Obviously, you couldn't do this with a business because if a business struggles, it, you know, it, you know, it falls, it crumbles, it it shrivels and dies. When it comes to a public program or a government program, it, they're just more incentivized to continue to being inefficient because they can always rely on the government. They can always rely on the taxpayers through coercive means to keep themselves afloat, even though it's just a cycle of just, do, just doing the same over and over. Just keep continuing to fail, keep continuing to fail to meet to, to reach its goals. And it's just a never-ending cycle. Yeah, I mean, I had a couple of episodes ago. Are you familiar with crowdfunding government? Yes. So they, uh, I interviewed Theodore from crowdfunding government, and we sort of talked about this and why, how if governments, you know, if government programs all stayed in place, but 
they were crowdfunded in the sense that instead of paying your taxes to the government, you could say, okay, I like what the Department of Education is doing. I'm gonna give them some money or I'm gonna give this, uh, the FDA money or the DEA or whatever organization. Right. And they have a duty to, to stay afloat, to stay in business, to please the consumer. Because otherwise, like any other business, they have to fight for that money. Right. And so, you know, I mean, I think that, I personally think that might be the way to go in the meantime, because I think it could be, I think it might be easier to convince people of that than of just straight abolishing the DOE or the FDA or whatever. And you can say, well, if you like these programs, you can give your money to them. Right, exactly. And um, another important thing I would propose or suggest is a constitutional amendment for the government to be required to pass a budget that is balanced. Because for God knows how long, I don't even know how many years, but I can guarantee you it's been a long time since the government's um, passed a bill that or passed a budget that was balanced to begin with. What I've seen, especially in a lot of documentaries with um, some congressmen, especially those from the Freedom Caucus, is that every year they pass a budget that, like, like, it's, like it doesn't balance right out of the gate, but they say, oh, it's going to balance eventually. Because I remember in an interview, um, Congressman Ken Buck from Colorado um, Republican, of course, part of the Freedom Caucus. Um, he was he was telling us he was telling in the interview a story of him talking with a staffer on how you know the staffer was encouraging him to vote for the new budget, and um, of course he said as usual, "Oh, but this doesn't balance. Like I'm I don't think I'm in favor of uh, voting for the budget." But the staffer says, "Oh, but it's going to budget it's going to balance the budget in ten years," and then Ken Buck, then Congressman Buck says. Okay, okay, but um, how many years have you been, you know, working at Capitol Hill? And the staff and the staffer said thirteen years. And then he asked him, okay, but have you ever seen a budget balance? And then the staffer just is shocked and is just like, you know what, you're right. We the budget never balances. Like it, it's ridiculous. Like there's no incentive for even you know the Congress or for you know politicians in Capitol Hill to try to spend responsibly, try not to spend beyond their means, you know, and it continues to do more and more of that every year, regardless of who is in power, including now with, despite having up till now, I mean, up until after 2018, a Republican trifecta, even then they were still passing deficits that we've never seen before. It just continues to get historically higher and higher every year especially now with these years budget, we're approaching towards a trillion dollars for the deficit for this year. You know, where's the fiscal conservatism? Where's the fiscal responsibility in that? 
you know, and again, it's regardless of who is in power. It's just that form of control with that form of control that Capitol Hill has, it just disincentivizes them from actually trying to practice what they preach, at least on the conservative side, when it comes to actually trying to rein in spending, when it comes to actually trying to at least make these programs more effective. And of course, as for me, a lot of these programs have become too inefficient to even try to save that we just need to abolish altogether. You know, but they're not even trying to rein in on spending. They're not even trying to better hold these institutions or these agencies accountable when it comes to asking for more and more money every single year, even though they're not providing any form of improvement of results whatsoever. And a lot of cases just getting worse, just worse and worse every year. Right. And I mean, you know, I think the only way to ultimately the only way to fix it, you know, everyone always says, get money out of politics. You know, that's always comes up, you know, specifically, I guess, from the Democrats is that they say that was the big thing with Bernie was we have to get money out of politics. That's why everyone's so corrupt. But at the end of the day, it's, it's actually the other way around. We have to get politics out of money because, you know, if we just, I mean, look at like two months after Obama left office, he gave a speech at a bank for $400,000. So there's always going to be ways for companies and businesses to get around the, uh, you know, if you get rid of corporate finance campaigns, they're just going to find another way. So, right. So the only way to get around that is to say, okay, all this stuff that you're invested in, the government no longer controls. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, again, we just have to find better ways to, and this leads back to, you know, what we were talking about before when it comes to relying on the government for, you know, to solve every single issue. And, you know, and even in aspects such as climate change, like if you look at all the progressives or the uh, left-leaning institutions and organizations and figures that complain that the government is not doing enough, you know, they can think whatever they want. But what, fi- what I find extremely ironic is that a lot of them tend to say, you know what, if the government's not going to do something about this, if my politicians are not going to figure something, you know, figure something out to the problem, I'm going to do something about it myself. I'm going to raise money. I'm going to, you know, find ways myself to get, you know, to start a movement, to gather people together voluntarily to solve this issue. But what they don't realize is that that's exactly what we should be doing. That's exactly what we should be promoting in this country. Like, I kind of laughed when um, Patagonia, after they got their tax breaks, you know, from this year's 
you know, from Trump's uh, GOP tax cuts, they said, you know what, we're going to donate this money to climate change. We don't feel that the government is doing anything to fix this. We're going to do this ourselves. And a lot of us libertarians are like, yes, that's exactly what we want you to do. That's exactly what we are pushing people to do in the first place, because we agree. Government isn't efficient. Government hasn't done anything to fix the problem. There is no incentive for them to fix the problem. So we should be doing more of that. We should look to ourselves, whether it's to fighting climate change or to even supporting Planned Parenthood, even though I don't support them, but look at all the celebrities. Like when even Trump just even threatened to defund Planned Parenthood, they received so many private donations. Again, I don't support them, but I'm completely fine with them getting private donations or getting privately funded because that in the end, that's exactly like what I want to see happen. I want American people to be more engaged. I want us to do things voluntarily. And when you get, when you do things voluntarily, when you do, when you advocate for a goal, or if you try and accomplish something voluntarily and without coercion, we tend to be more successful. We tend to be better off. You know, so again, that's something we really need to promote. And it's ironic because they do this, but on the other side, on the flip side, but on the other hand, they say, oh, but we need the government to do this for us. Like you're directly proving to us real time why your remarks or your rhetoric is bullcrap. It's like you're, you're, pre you're practicing the opposite, opposite of what you're preaching. You know, and a lot of people don't seem to understand that. And if we can just point that out to people, it'll have a lot of people thinking, huh, you know, we keep complaining that the government fails to do things for us and we tend to be more successful when we do things ourselves. Maybe we should stop asking the government to do things, do all these things for us in the first place. Maybe we'll, and it, it'll help us grow a lot farther, a lot more as a country. Right. And, you know, I forget, there was a study that someone did. I forget who it was. But they basically said that they basically came to the conclusion that when people believe the government isn't going to fund something, that's when they start donating to the cause. Yes. So it's the same, it's the perfect example was with Planned Parenthood. Everyone panicked that the government was going to stop funding Planned Parenthood. And so you saw the um, poor, you saw people giving donations like crazy. Yeah. Just because they said, so, but my point, right, so my point was, well, this clearly doesn't need government donations because there are plenty of people willing to fund it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and why should you force someone who doesn't believe in Planned Parenthood to fund it? Exactly. You know, and it comes around to, you know, what I was talking about before, you know, like, and as the old saying that, 
numbers. They have to, they have to able to, you know, get into. I'm sorry, you're you're cutting out a little. Okay. Um. How about now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, my internet's a little weird, but um, like what I was saying is, you know, yeah. Um, almost lost my train of thought, but when it comes to you know, again, like the as the old saying goes, good ideas don't require force. Like if your ideas are so good, if your ideas towards improving society is so much better, whereas the best I why do you have to force people to you know follow through on that idea? Why do you have to force people into into those ideas? Because if they were actually actually better, people would independently realize or learn, hey, you know, this idea is great. I think we should do this and be better off. And you don't have to again coerce people into going by those ideas. Right. And uh, you know, I think that's I think that's the whole idea is to come at it from the perspective of you know I mean I think look you look at Republicans you look at Democrats they all have things that they don't want government to interfere with in their lives and then they have you know, it's usually the opposite. And then they have everything else they want government to interfere with their lives, to make them do things, you know, whether it's gun control on the left or, you know, it used to be um, marriage, um, you know, keeping marriage between a man and a woman on the right. Now it's not that. But there are always things that each side doesn't want government control and wants government control. So I think the key is to find those things that each side doesn't want government control and convince them, well, if they if you don't want government to control this, well, why do you want government to control this or right. that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to kind of conclude, you know, with um, everything that we've discussed, you know, that is um, part of fundamentals, fundamentally why I've joined Young Americans for in the first place, you know, is to, again, promote these ideas to really get people to understand, hey, you know, maybe things in government, hey, things in government are good or bad, regardless, regardless of whether or not your guy or your political party is in office. Like I always say, as a general rule, if you're afraid of a government program or an institution being um, politically utilized or, polit or being politically exploited by an opposing party, like so in essence, let's say, for example, you know, the... Um, the the left is concerned that President Donald Trump is not going to do anything in terms of the EPA. They think he's going to dismantle it, or they think you know he's going to completely undermine its, the purpose of its existence. And then I tell them, hey, look at Patagonia, look at all these 
corporations and organizations that are taking their own voluntary initiatives to do something about it in place. Maybe would like, maybe would you consider the idea that, Hey, you know, if you're worried that the government is not going to do anything in this aspect, depending on who is in office, maybe do you think like, should like, do you think maybe that it shouldn't even be something under the auspices of government in the first place? Because if you can do it through your own voluntary means, what is the point of um, trying to coerce people into going by your ideas? Like, if you can prove to people, I think I think you can make a lot a much stronger case if you can prove to people individually or on your own that hey, not only do I think these ideas are great that I'm proposing, here's evidence on what I'm doing. Here's what I'm doing to ensure and you know to help me or help us as a society achieve these goals. Like if we're going to really, you know, combat climate change or to, you know, change the status quo in any aspect, maybe we should start looking at doing things ourselves. And again, like in this country, we're doing a lot of that. It's just when it comes to rhetoric, it's the complete opposite. Whether it's Barack Obama talking about, you know, trying to force every race to be equal when, it's try, when it comes to trying to level the playing field through government means, it's ironic even to his own upbringing because you know, he was a minority, but he, everything he did, like his, like I kind of, in a way, I admire his, his life story. You know, he, from a capitalist conservative standpoint, he did everything he was supposed to do. Like he kept his head down, he worked hard, he had a goal in life. And he succeeded, even though he came from, you know, um, non-ideal circumstances. But instead, in rhetoric, when he became president, he pushed people to do essentially the complete opposite of what he did. To instead, rely on the government in order to keep yourself afloat in all aspects. So in a lot of ways, I think a big step forward and or a way to, you know, start taking big steps forward is one simple thing. Just tell the American people, look, we're doing, look, look at all these great things that we're doing that are making us prosperous. You know, all these new technologies, all these new things that we have in society, um, you know, all these initiatives and all these goals that we achieve or accomplish through our own voluntary means. This shows, hey, we can do things ourselves as individuals. Why in the world do we need government in order to accomplish these things for us, especially when time and time again, they continue to fail to do so. And, they, and what's even more important is that they never hold themselves accountable towards achieving those goals. When you do it through private means, it's, it's, be, it's a much better, it's, it's uh, better to, or let me put it this way, it's, it's a lot easier, it's a lot more important to hold people accountable or hold yourself accountable towards achieving those goals. Otherwise, since you don't have to force people to fund your, what you're doing or to get involved in what you're doing, you have to better rely on yourself and your limited resources in order to become successful. Otherwise you just simply fail and your, your initiative or your business or your movement just dies and you don't have to, and you know, but when it comes again, when it comes to anything that's government, funded you can just keep propping yourself up and just keep you know doing the absolute bare minimum and not hold and not have to hold yourself accountable by any means 
Right. And, you know, I think we'll uh, wrap it up. But, you know, I think that it's important to get that message out there and try and um, use that message to convince people. Because I think you can uh, get the message of less government control across to pretty much everyone. You just have to come up with, you just have to come up with good ways of doing it for each individual person. And, you know, like I said earlier, you know, it's, I think with, uh, I think with like a, uh, Young Americans for Liberty stamp of approval on certain candidates, I think that's a good way to say, well, I don't, because, you know, the, the fact of the matter is no one can really know things about their city council or, you know, like they had in New York, they had the election for public advocate. Like you can't know all things about all these candidates. So I think having organizations like you guys put your stamp of approval on candidates I think that could be a, a good cheat sheet for people to go, oh, well, that's a good candidate. I trust that organization. I, I trust their judgment on so-and-so candidate. I'll vote for that guy. Right, exactly. And um, in, even before when we got involved with uh, Operation With The Door, when it came to uh, endorsing candidates, um, the most important thing that we do at the end of the day is um, education and awareness. Um, on college campuses, and in my case, um, commun- you know, outside communities, counties, local areas, um, we look to you know, educate people on these ideas, you know, the ideas of liberty and what it really means to become an American, or not even become American, but like to really understand the fundamental ideas and principles that this country was founded on, that the founding fathers never intended for us to rely so heavily on the government that we do today in the way that we do today in order to succeed or be free as a society. And um, that's why, you know, everything I do with Young Americans for Liberty is extremely important to me because I felt that if my family who initially, you know, first came into this country in poverty can, you know, rely on themselves and work their way up to a more successful life that they never would have had in their home country. And without a doubt, anyone in this country would do it as well, or anyone that comes into this country or is born and raised in this country, that they can rely on themselves, that especially if they can surround themselves in the right communities or with the right people, 
to really look into, okay, what do I have to do in order to really prop myself up? Because at the end of the day, a lot of what we do voluntarily, a lot of the stuff that we do voluntarily, whether it's through um, funding or supporting nonprofit organizations or, you know, um, community organizations or, you know, starting businesses or supporting local businesses, all that is done voluntarily. A lot of that is done through the ideas of, you know, individualism. A lot of the ideas that libertarianism and limited government is supportive of and again one of my most important things is if we can at least get people to even realize like it's not even educating necessarily in a lot of cases if we get people to realize hey look at a lot of stuff we're doing did the government do this did the government you know create all this no it was us as individuals so if we can get people just to even realize that and have them scratch your scratch their head thinking huh you know, maybe we don't need the government doing a lot of this, a lot of these things in the first place or getting involved in these industries in the first place, then maybe we can be even better off as a society than we are now. Right. So um, I think, you know, given that, um, you know, we're at the beginning of campaign season, is... Are there any presidential candidates on the Democratic side that you see, I don't know, potential in? Um, holistically speaking, no. But one candidate that I do absolutely respect, and I'm sure you've commonly heard this in uh, libertarian circles, is uh, Tulsi Gabbard. I think she's like with any other Democratic candidate on, you know, absolutely crazy and goes by the status quo on uh, education or health care and gun control, especially. Um, what we do respect and what I do respect about her is her, um, even though this is something we haven't talked about throughout this whole conversation, is um, war and foreign policy. How the, how the governments basically, or how the Congress basically gave the president uncompromising power or uncontroversial, you know, completely full control of whether or not we decide to go to war with certain countries or send our troops into certain countries. And obviously that is very unconstitutional. And what we've admired, you know, through her, because obviously a lot of us libertarians are anti-war or at least trying to, or at least we are pro trying, like if we're going to go into war, we should at least do it through a declaration through Congress, get through the approval of Congress, like as the constitution explicitly explains that the government should do. And um, the fact that she points it out and that we shouldn't be in meddling in a lot of the uh, stuff that's going on in the Middle East in the first place, that's something I definitely admire of her and I think is an important conversation to have. So Again, to answer that question, I think Tulsi Gabbard is the one that is probably best out of all of them, even though on a lot of other issues, she's still more of the same compared to the other candidates. Yeah, she, you know, I, I really like her. I, you know, I, I liked her since uh, she sort of left the DNC on principle because of what they were doing to Bernie Sanders. Right. And, you know, while 
she does hold many of those democratic socialist views on things like health care and education and the minimum wage and stuff like that. I do get the sense from her that she is more open than any other candidate and she'd be willing to listen to anyone who comes to her with another perspective because you know she you know she's the only democrat who went to meet with trump after he was elected she went to syria to meet with assad because she said well why shouldn't i meet with him so i think she's i don't know i it's just a sense i get i haven't there's no evidence to that because you know one of the other things i respect about her is that she does podcasts and I think that, you know, I think that doing a podcast as a candidate is much more beneficial to you than doing your five-minute soundbite on MSNBC or CNN right. because you get to get down in the details of what you want. The thing is, she hasn't really been on a podcast where someone is knowledgeable enough to push back. You know, she's been on Joe Rogan twice, but Joe Rogan's not the kind of guy who's you know, he just wants to have a conversation. He doesn't want to, he's not of the mind to really confront someone on certain issues. And he's not necessarily knowledgeable enough. I think he would admit that. He's not knowledgeable enough to ask a Tulsi Gabbard, the kinds of questions that like a libertarian podcaster would ask her. Right. And I do think it would be beneficial for people like the Lions of Liberty or, you know, whoever to reach out to her and sort of, you know, ask her the tough questions in a nice way, you know, sort of not, not to be confrontational, but to sort of bring up these ideas, because I don't think she's ever heard them. Right. Right, you know, so, um, again, I think, like, I agree completely. Like, I watched um, both of those uh, interviews she had with Joe Rogan, and that's where I first gained a lot of respect for her, even though, like, even before she became a more respectable mainstream in the libertarian circles. Um, you know, like, again, I, I could disagree with her with a lot of stuff, and I do. 
but at the end of the day, I think it's very important. I think it says a lot about her as a person, as a candidate especially, that she's willing to sit down and talk about these ideas. In the right. With the mainstream candidates, they just like to, like you said, they just pivot towards, you know, parroting the same talking points every time. And unfortunately, the main reason that they're doing that is, that, is because they do, they're doing it out of political convenience and that they understand, hey, you know, a lot of these people don't bother to inform themselves on the issues. So if you just keep repeating the same two or three sentences over and over throughout the course of the campaign, they'll have our vote because that's all they know. A lot of people don't bother to really go into details on the candidates themselves, like to really look into the issues. Like one thing that I've learned, especially when it comes to trying to get people into this movement is that a lot of them, a lot of the people who are on the fence will usually reply to me saying, oh, I got to do more research on the issues. And I'm not going to assume what the kind of research they do, but I know for a fact that a lot of these people, like, they, they, only, they can only do so much research. Like, like some people could just go, could go to the library and try to, like, study all these issues. Like, I'm sure there's people like that, but in a lot of ways, a lot of people just do like maybe a five second Google search and read a couple articles and that's it. You know, I think we need to teach people to really not to like watch every single podcast or to not to watch every single thing that they're supposed to find. Like I'm not asking for that, but even if you can just read into a little, at least try to bother reading into a little bit more detail on the issues at hand and why these politicians have these views or even what their actual views or the actual history is if they've been in political office or have held other positions before of elected office, um, I think a lot of people will really open their eyes and realize, hey, these are the, like, they'll soon learn, okay, these are the people that we should really look more towards to. And you know, I, I strongly feel that if a lot more people did that, Tulsi Gabbard would be up a lot higher in, in the Democrat polls. Um, Trump would probably be, you know, maybe even a little bit more popular, less popular, who knows. And um, people will be a lot more informed and make potentially better decisions on uh, the future of our country. And I hope that, you know, with what I'm doing with Young Americans for Liberty or I'm planning to do, what I'm trying to do with Young Americans for Liberty and other organizations that have our similar goals, that we can continue to teach more and more people, hey, if you, if you just start to dig a little bit more, you know, there'll be a, there's a lot more to this stuff than what meets the eye and that, um, you know, we can actually start changing the country and, uh, you know, have a more effective movement. Right. And, um, I think that's a good place to end it. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, if you have anything to plug, you know, maybe a website or something, just go ahead and do it. Okay, great. Um, you know, for everyone who's listening, um, I, to learn more about Young Americans for Liberty, go to www.yaliberty.org. So Y-A-L-I-B-E-R-T-Y.org. Um, also, of course, um, I'm uh, readily available on, uh, on Facebook on it at, um, you know, Matthew Castaneda, uh, C-A-S-T-A-N-E-D-A. -A I also have an Instagram at, uh, it's at Y-A-L-N-J chair. Um, like, you know, so again, Y-A-L-N-J-C-H-A-I-R. 
what the Owl NJ chair. And um, yeah, you know, thank, so uh, Tori, thank you so much for having me. Sure, anytime. This was fun. We should, uh, oh, maybe, you know, in the future, we'll do this again, maybe towards like an election to see if there's who's out there or who you're endorsing. Um, and, you know, like, like always, uh, you could like the Unuseful Idiots. We're on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Minds. We have a Patreon account, uh, you know, and always go like, comment, subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to us. And uh, that's it, guys. See you next time.